0: The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month, he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. For the month of March on The Compliance Life, I visit with Rob Chesna. Rob was most recently the Chief Compliance Officer at Airbnb. Rob has had a long and distinguished legal career, starting out with the U.S. Attorney's Office in moving across the country to join eBay in the 1990s. He worked in Silicon Valley for the next 20 years or so. In 2016, he moved to Airbnb as their general counsel and later moved to take over the role or take on the role of the chief ethics officer. He also wrote the best-selling book, Intentional Integrity. It's a really fascinating podcast series. Rob has a unique journey, as do all. Chief Compliance Officers. I know you will enjoy this series, and more importantly, you will learn a lot about uh, being an in-house lawyer, a Chief Compliance Officer, and a Chief Ethics Officer. Plan to join us over the month of March for The Compliance Life. These podcasts post each Tuesday at 2 p.m. In part one of this special four-part podcast series with Rob Chestnut, We take a look at his formative years, how the honor code at the University of Virginia influenced his thoughts around ethics going forward, uh, moving to the U.S. Attorney's Office out of law school, and some of the top and really important cases he handled in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to another episode of The Compliance Life. And today, I am in, you are in for a real treat, as am I, because so we're going to visit this month with Rob Chestnut. Rob is the most recently retired chief compliance officer from Airbnb, but uh, his career is really much more extensive than that, and I think you're in for a real treat. So, Rob, first of all, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me on this. Well, Tom, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Rob, in this episode, we wanted to go a little bit into your... Uh, academic background where you went to college and law school and how any of those uh, areas that you either studied, read about, or even were were brought up might have informed you moving into compliance uh, at a later date. Uh, so could you maybe start with that for us.
1: Sure. I, w- I was a government major at the University of Virginia and I went to Harvard Law School. I, the University of Virginia is, I think, had a real impact on me in that it's, uh, they're famous for having an honor code uh, about lying uh, and if you uh, if you are caught lying, you're expelled from the school. It's a student-run honor organization. And so I think I grew up with a strong sense of the importance of rules. Uh, and, you know, that's something that I carried with me when I got out of law school and ended up at the U.S. Justice Department for the first, oh, gosh, 14 years of my career.
0: So I've heard a lot of people over the years talk about UVA's honor code and the impact that it had on them. Um, You feel like that that sort of honor code still exists at UVA, or is it it ended somewhere after perhaps our generation went through? Well, you know, the the honor code still
1: exists at UVA. And it's, uh, look, I think it evolves too. It's not perfect. And there are are certainly, uh, you know, aspects of it, I think, that are constantly under review. But what I think is, you know, more important than the details of exactly how it works or what its flaws might be, is the, the basic principle that I think it instills in students. Look, you know, I think uh, you know, any college will tell you that lying, cheating, and stealing is bad. But something that the University of Virginia I think does well is they they drive the importance of integrity throughout the culture of the school. It's it's openly talked about, and I think the fact that it's part of the conversation. Uh, means that that people think about it there, and it, it does have an impact on students' lives.
0: You know, I really like the way you set that up where you said it's evolving, and then near the end you said it's an ongoing conversation. I once heard an interview with Wei Chen about the original formation of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that got released in February of 2017, and, and she said her goal was really to to have a conversation and to get compliance practitioners start thinking and talking about these issues. So it really sounds like that by having that ongoing dialogue, that evolution, it's allowed you uh, to be a part of that discussion, but it's allowed a a a generation, maybe even two or three of UVA students to also be a part of that discussion.
1: Well, yeah, the UV uh, the, the code of the University of Virginia dates back to, you know, the beginning of the school and, and Thomas Jefferson's founding of it. So it's it's something that's gone on for a couple of centuries now. Uh, and, and I think that's impactful. I, look, I, I, again, you know, this this impacts me in the way I think about things at companies as well. Like every company, uh, every large company, every public company has got a code of conduct. And it. it talks about integrity. The problem is that for many companies, this code of conduct is buried a couple of links deep in the corporate internet. And nobody talks about it. Uh, and, and nobody knows what it means. Like, look, WeWork, I was looking the other day at WeWork's uh, code of ethics. And their code of ethics talks about the word, you know, it has the word integrity in the first two lines. But, you know, the company ended up uh, you know, falling apart uh, in, in in part due to a lack of integrity in the way that they operate. So it's not enough to have the words. Uh, you need to have the conversation, the dialogue to go with it, to keep it top of mind.
0: So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little about your uh, initial professional experience after you graduated from law school and what led you to the U.S. Attorney's Office.
1: Well, you know, I think rules... You know, or then sort of a theme throughout my career. Right. And I, and I got uh, got a law school. I clerked for a judge. And when I clerked for a judge in northern Virginia, uh, I you know, saw th- uh, prosecutors in court all the time, every day. And look, I, I, I'm the type that likes to learn through doing instead of watching. And I know that if I went to a law firm, there's a lot of watching, uh, watching partners do the work. And I love the fact that the Justice Department would take people, young people, and and give them a file and say, "Go do this." So you know, I ended up in the Justice Department Honors Program uh, and did civil constitutional defense work for a while until I could get myself back to Northern Virginia for a position as a federal prosecutor. And I I ended up staying in the U.S. Attorney's Office there for about ten years. I ended up running the Major Crimes Unit, and you know, I was there at a very interesting time. The uh, you know, it was a, it's a fascinating jurisdiction. I think it's probably the, the, one of the most sought-after prosecution offices in the country because it has the CIA in its jurisdiction and a lot of federal buildings. So they end up with a lot of interesting cases that most offices don't see. I ended up handling uh, a number of espionage cases, including um, a guy by the name of Alder James, who was a CIA employee who spied for the Russians. And I ended up you know, being able to do cases like that because of you know, the, the location of the office. But again, it goes back to uh, drilling further into me the importance of you know, having rules that are grounded in integrity and the consequences of what happens when you don't live that way.
0: Uh, so let me go back to your clerkship for a moment and ask you a couple of questions about that. Could you uh, could you tell us the name of the federal judge you clerked for? Sure, Judge
1: Richard L. Williams. You know, Judge Williams was a Virginia uh, Virginia lawyer uh, and a heck of a trial lawyer. Uh, and he came all you know, came out of a, a law firm by the name of McGuire Woods. It's still you know still a big force today, and uh, was you know my mentor you
0: know, as a young lawyer. And in that role, uh, I've, I clerked for a state trial judge, so I have some familiarity with at least the process. And you get to see sort of the best of the best and some examples that may be less than best. And did that help inform your start of your legal career?
1: Sure. I, you learn as much from the lawyers
0: that aren't very good
1: uh, as you do from the lawyers that are great. You know, the judge, you know, we used to, you know, uh, to take, you know, take breaks from court and the judge would go back to the chambers with us. And he'd, uh, in his very colorful style, would tell us exactly what he thought of what the lawyers were doing and why, what the mistake was. And the, the judge would rant about, you know, why the lawyer asked one too many questions and ended up, you know, just, just killing them. So, you know, the, the judge was really my teacher uh, in how to be a trial lawyer. And, you know, again, that has a big impact on me. You know, to this day,
0: you mentioned the Aldrich Ames case. I was wondering if you might uh, talk to us about two or three of the really memorable cases that you handled while you were uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office.
1: Well, you know, the Aldrich Ames case was obviously right there. I mean, it was a national, you know, international case on you know, front pages of uh, all the newspapers. And, and you know, back then we had magazines like Time and Newsweek. I remember it was on the cover which certainly put a lot of pressure on me as a young lawyer, you know, going to court every day with the packed courthouse and the cameras and the like. Uh, you know, with, uh, Ames and his wife both ended up pleading guilty to espionage. And, you know, that was a, uh, you know, handling that case and working with the, the FBI and the folks at the CIA is something I'll never forget. Uh, you know, I, I handled a number of, a number of cases uh, involving drug organizations. and I think those impacted me in a different way. You know, I ended up prosecuting a lot of young people who uh you know, frankly, didn't have the opportunities that I had in life. And you know, they these these are young kids who were going to you know going to jail for you know 10, 20 years without parole. I would do everything I could to help work with them to get them to cooperate so that the sentence could be reduced. Uh, I I think that experience built uh built some empathy, frankly, in me. And you know the uh it's a very powerful experience, and something that, frankly, it led me to leave the U.S. Attorney's Office ultimately because I wanted to have, wanted to be a positive force in the world. You know, you, you need prosecutors; they're important, but um, I wanted to feel like I was going to work every day, creating opportunities for people, and creating, uh, you know, something that could help bring the world closer together. And you know, as a prosecutor, you are unfortunately in uh, a very negative role. And that you're sort of presiding over, you know, lives that have gone in the wrong direction. So uh, the the I, I learned a lot, them, but they they were cases that that uh, were sad in a lot of ways, and led me I think to look for something more.
0: Rob, could you uh, tell us a little bit about the, the process uh, that a U.S. attorney utilizes in terms of? Not getting a case ready for trial, but how do you work with the FBI? Does does someone bring information to you? Do they bring a, a fully formed case to you and then you do the prosecutor thing? Or could you explain a little bit how that works for our audience? Sure.
1: You know, I, I would uh, I would get a call from an FBI agent, you know, in the case of the Alder James case, it would be you know, the head of the Washington field office. And they'd, they'd set up, uh, they'd say, I'd like to come by and talk to you about a new case. And they would come in and they would basically present the case to me. Uh, they they uh, and sometimes the cases are fully formed. Uh, you know, sometimes in the, the fact the arrest has already been made. You know, someone robbed a bank and they arrested them in the getaway car. You know, with the exploding die pack. Uh, you know, in other cases the ca- uh, it would come to me half formed, and they would you know often realize that it was half formed, and we would then talk about what we could do to, to build the case. And you know, so in some cases, the, you know, I'm immediately working from an arrest and it's you know, the case is moving. And in other cases, it might be a, a year or two of investigation where you're working with the FBI and you're advising them on uh, what type of evidence might be needed to meet the legal requirements and uh, the legality of different potential tactics to get that evidence.
0: Did you ever have any cases where you worked uh, together with Maine Justice, and if so, could you tell us a little bit about that process from an uh, AUSA's perspective?
1: Yeah, I worked with Maine Justice a lot with the espionage cases, you know, cases involving national security and uh, you know classified, highly classified, um, you know, code word type information would require you know. Uh, work with Maine Justice. And but I didn't look at it as a requirement. I looked at it as, uh, you know, a, a partnership because I needed help. You know, I, like I, I didn't know it all. And I, I was lucky enough, there were a couple of lawyers there, you know, a guy by the name of John Martin and another one by the name of John Dion, who were, uh, you know, legendary, really, I think, in that they had been working in, in the national security field for decades and had seen a number of these cases. And so for me, it was a partnership. And, you know, using their expertise uh, to help me get through the complexities of national security cases. And, of course, there's always, you know, the the working with the uh, the higher-ups at Maine Justice on, you know, when, when you end up with an issue that can be a little bit politically sensitive and you're working with folks that are political appointees. You get some of that. But, look, for the most part, as a federal prosecutor, um, you know, the, the cases don't involve Maine Justice uh cooperation. They're cases that are handled by folks in the field on a routine basis every day.
0: Well, Rob, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode, where we take a look at your move to the corporate world. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode with Scott Sullivan in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes, Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.